0: Welcome to the fourth season of the Delve podcast, produced by Delve, the McGill University Desotel Faculty of Management's thought leadership platform. For our first episode of the season, we're pleased to feature Desotel professor and preeminent management scholar Henry Mintzberg in conversation with Desotel professor and Delve editor-in-chief Saku Mantra. Expect to hear a wide-ranging, critical conversation about management, leadership, and organizations today from business to governments to higher education. How has management thinking and research changed in the past 50 years, and where might it be headed in the near future?
1: My name is Saku Mantere, and I'm a professor here at the Desautels Faculty of Management. I was brought up on Henry Mintzberg's work on strategy and organizations. When I was studying to be a scholar, I was struck by his idea of how strategies were really things that people did together in organizations. The strategies could emerge from collective learning, and a lot of the formal models and consultant slides that we saw about strategy were really just the surface of a phenomenon that was much, much deeper. So I've had the possibility of becoming friends with Henry and and colleagues here at the faculty, and I've had the privilege of following his work opening up towards broader societal questions, the types of questions that are really timely and pressing, such as climate change, such as education, the political divide that we're seeing. And the really neat thing that I find about that is that a lot of this is about collective strategy. It is about how strategy emerges not only within organizations, but between organizations of very different kinds. NGOs, firms, policy organizations, governments, all these have to come together if we think about these grand challenges of society. So I had the great pleasure of having a conversation with Henry where we cover a wide variety of issues, and I'm really happy to be able to present it to you as a special publication of Delve. So I hope you enjoy it. Henry, thanks for joining us.
2: It's a pleasure, Saku.
1: I'd like to begin with your PhD. So you did a PhD at MIT and you, you had a pretty big insight about leaders. What did leaders actually do? So can you tell us a little about how that unfolded?
2: Not so much leaders, but managers. Mm -hmm. Uh, At least uh, that, that was the term I used. The Nature uh, of Managerial Work, right? That was my first book. And it was a success right from the beginning. The head of NASA, James Webb, wanted to be studied. And he approached some professors at MIT. They approached me because I was the only one who had a remote interest in management. Everybody else was interested in marketing, finance, operations. Uh, I said, oh, that's a crazy idea, you know, <laughs> study one guy for a PhD at MIT. But anyway, I groped around for a thesis and came back months later and said, you know what? I'll do that. But, uh, web was no longer available. So I observed five chief executives, three in business, uh, one in running a big school system, one running a major hospital, the other three in business. And I sat there and wrote down things that were patently obvious that nobody ever wrote down before, which were things like they get interrupted a lot and they like to get interrupted. They want to get interrupted. It's action oriented. Uh, fail wrote in 1916 that managers plan organize coordinate command and control which are five words for control and i didn't see that i saw them spending half their time with people outside their organizations they weren't controlling them but half their time was with customers or government officials or union people or whatever it was a very hectic job it's not a job where you can plan they they spoke and listened especially a lot more than they wrote. So it was a very different job. So I just wrote it down and uh, it was a big success because finally somebody had said what's going on for real.
1: Yeah, so what's going on for real? I think that's a pretty good encapsulation about what your work has been like, right? Because it's the same thing. You, You wrote about emergent strategy. You know, it's not about what executives plan and the strategy statements that are being published they used to be sort of memos and, and things that were put, in, put into safes. And now, now they're PowerPoint slides or, or whatever executive speeches, but strategies about what actually happens.
2: Yeah, you know, most strategic planning is just plain silly, and it's a waste of everybody's time. They pretend they're making strategy out of the blue, the, you know, immaculate conception. That's not how strategies are made. Strategies are learned. You try things, you do different things, you hit something, you discover something you didn't expect, whatever. You know, Ikea went into uh, unassembled furniture Mm -hmm. because a worker tried to put a table in his car and didn't fit so he took the legs off and then came the strategic moment, which was a simple little switch. If we have to take the legs off, so do they, meaning the customers that change the furniture business. That's where strategies come from. So all this hype about strategic planning, so much just plain silly and an absolute monumental waste of time.
1: So it's trial and error, learning.
2: Yeah, it's serendipitous learning, it's trial and error learning, it's observing, it's seeing things and noticing things, and it's doing in place of or ahead of thinking. You do in order to think. You don't just think in order to do. And uh, this idea of disconnect, that you sit in an office and invent these grand strategies, is just not reality most of the time. And even if it does come out of such a meeting, it's because the people in that meeting have been had their feet on the ground and have been watching what's going on.
1: So did you know that Jeff Bezos, uh the chief executive well, he former chief executive but founder of Amazon, he actually quite extensively discussed one of your your papers on decision making in in a shareholders letter yeah, a couple of that years letter. ago. Yeah,
2: I was really amazed by that. <laughs>
1: yeah, but actually it's kind of funny because I think he may approach things somewhat similarly. So, you know, the whole yeah. whole Amazon story has been about well, we can of course then discuss the role of Amazon in society, which we will do later. But sort of, it's clearly been a very successful enterprise, and it seems that that there's been a lot of trial and error, a lot of learning, uh, lots yeah. of experimentation in that story.
2: You know, and it's a, quite an academic article. It was in Administrative Science Quarterly, which is the academic yeah. journal in management, and it's called "The Structure of Unstructured Decision Processes." So, sure, it appealed to him.
1: How about? organizational structure then because it seems that you've written the book on I'm still going to call it leadership. I know that you don't like the distinction between leaders and managers, but sort of that's where the literature was. There was a huge industry of writing books about leadership. So Fayol and, and Barnard and and many of these other classics, they didn't wrote, write about management. They wrote about leadership. And sort of that's what your your work did. It revolutionized that literature. So I made the choice of calling it leadership. So you basically, what you did was you just went and saw what what people who we call leaders, the chief executives, what is it that they do. Then you continued by looking at the strategies that actually unfold, emergent strategies or realized strategies. But then you also wrote wrote a very important book on organizational structure, the structure in fives, as it used to be called.
2: You know, um, Fayol in the first book referred to it as administration. Yeah, I'm not sure he used the word leader or manager. Although manager actually comes from French, it has something to do with holding horses.
1: Horses, the management of horses, yeah. Yeah.
2: The book on structure is my most successful book, and it was an attempt to synthesize the research. Uh, In a lot of uh, areas, we have tons of research, but nobody synthesizes it, nobody pulls it together. So it's not useful for practitioners. So I called the original version of that book, which was called The Structuring of Organizations. I subtitled it a synthesis of the research. And then I did Structure in Fives as a shorter version of the same thing. Um, and that was, became my most successful book by far. And it's still being used. Somebody wrote to me recently. He's a high school teacher and he says, I've been using your book for like since 1980 god knows what in high school and you know can we please have a new edition <laughs> it's amusing like 40 years later in high school of all things uh, but in fact i've been spending a lot of covid a lot of covid time in the last 2 3 years revising it and doing a new edition it's called understanding organizations finally exclamation point the book opens by saying how many organizations are you going to be, uh, are you involved with today? Is 10 an exaggeration? And then I open by saying, well, you know, your breakfast was brought to you by farms and food stores and so on and so forth. You opened your email on an apple or whatever it is. And I go through all Then you go to the bank during the day, you go to work and all that. And at the end, I say, I count 17. How many did I miss? And my point is, that we live in a world of organizations. From the moment we're born in hospitals to the moment we're buried by funeral homes, we're all involved with organizations. And yet we don't understand them, and we mix them all up. So the book is is a revision to try and make it clearer, more accessible, and also extends some of the basic arguments. And it's built around four basic forms of organizations that I call personal, programmed, professional, and project. And it really works well. Personal are like entrepreneurial companies where one person is very much autocratic regimes, where one person's in charge. Programmed are the classic McDonald-type bureaucracies. Everything is programmed, everything is structured. Professional are hospitals, engineering departments, universities, where it's the skill of the professionals that's central, and project our project organizations, whether they're consulting firms, or film companies, or hockey teams, I I actually use sports for all of them.
1: Let's focus on these four. So to me, I think there's a kind of a unifying sentiment here that A lot of the literature in our field, it tends to be very, very authoritarian that there are these one size fits all models and, and rules that we try to feed the practitioners and nobody really bothers too much to go and, and see how things actually unfold. At least sort of when you started your work, you know, it seems that for leadership, we had a decades of literature advising, you know, what leaders needed to do. And then nobody had bothered to take the time to actually go see what they actually did. And it seems that there's the, the same sentiment in the strategy stuff. There used to be a lot of literature when you started already. It was a kind of an emerging important literature on corporate planning that you know what was the right way to plan a strategy and then of course we had all sorts of consultants and and guidebooks on how to build the most efficient organization starting from taylor i suppose and what your work has really done is to go see how things actually unfold how they work
2: Exactly. No, no. I, I, it's all around learning in a way that, it, that organizations learn their strategies. I think organizations also learn their structures in the sense that the immaculate conception of structure, somebody sitting in an office, uh, you know, that this is what prime ministers and presidents do particularly prime ministers they sit there and they make their cabinet and it's all so convenient and 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 then they r- revise their cabinet you know they restructure their cabinet so they take joe and put him where mary is and mary where sally is and sally where yeah. joe is and and it's all very easy a few hours and you kind of move it all around and it's all done of course it can create chaos and 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 why are these cabinets 15 20 people um, well, you kind have a cabinet of 50 people, right? So you have, for example, the Department of Transport. Every country has a Department of Transport. Well, you tell me what air transport, sea transport, and ground transport have in common other than moving vehicles around. So it's a conglomerate. The Department of Transport is a conglomerate. Conglomerates don't work okay we should have three ministers we shouldn't have one we should have one one for air traffic control kind of problems one for sea and coast guard and one for trucking and roads and and all that but we we structure for convenience on paper how how much do
1: you think this sentiment is influenced by you being an engineer i think you're a mechanical engineer uh so and you know how hard it is to build things
2: Well, mechanical engineers are a bit nutty. I discovered that years later when I you know, I graduated and never much worked in mechanical engineering. And then I ended up at a conference, I don't know how I ever did, with a bunch of mechanical engineers. And we were going out back home at night, and one of the guys said, let's cut through the field. And we were sloshing, you know, ankle deep in this water and everything. And I thought, these guys are just like me. <laughs> I guess I'm a mechanical engineer. We're kind of playful and easygoing, and let's try it. It's also, you know, getting uh, dirt under your fingernails, getting your hands dirty, uh uh, and that's sort of my research, too, in a way. You know, go see what they do in their jobs, figure out how structures really work, track some strategies to see what really happened. It's so easy. It's not, you know, I don't take great credit for this. As you said a minute ago, people stand detached, and and they train managers to be detached. MBA programs mostly train managers through case studies and that kind of nonsense to be disconnected from what's going on. So you You read a case about a company that you know nothing about except what's in the case that was written by an assistant to a professor who most likely interviewed mostly the chief executive and got one point of view. And that's how we train managers. It's silly. You you don't create a manager in a classroom. That's the other thing you've done. You don't create a manager in a classroom. You you learn management on the job and then you can come into a classroom and reflect on what you've learned. So I
1: guess this was the Next big thing that you did after working on, on the nature of managerial work, working on strategy, working on structure, you've written extensively about managerial education. You criticized the MBA, but you also walked that talk. So you actually built two programs that, that are still operational at McGill, one for practicing managers and another one for healthcare leaders. Would you like to say something about those two programs?
2: Yeah. I mean, I did this reluctantly. I used to go around invited to business schools to, Give what I ca, what I came to call my flagellation lecture. Uh, I would go and tell them why MBA programs were destructive. And the funny part is nobody ever challenged me because I was so in their face. Uh, and they knew, they knew that, that MBA programs are great for training, finance, marketing, accounting, those kinds of things, but you don't, a manager in a classroom and so eventually people started to say all right so you're a big critic what are you doing about it and i kind of say you know i'm an academic i don't supposed to do anything about anything i'm just supposed to criticize anyway we eventually got embarrassed and we created the impm the international master's program for managers impm.org and it's now has its 24th class since 1996 i think um And they love it. It gives them a chance to sit, at, not in a tiered classroom, but at round tables in small groups and spend half their time reflecting on their own experience and sharing it with each other.
1: Yeah, I remember teaching in, you know, one group and I was talking to them about organizational change. And one of the students was the, I think, the leader of the International Boy Scouts Organization. And then there was an Anglican bishop in the the group. Yeah, they're really practicing managers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're from exactly.
2: We love that kind of variety. In the healthcare program, imhl.org, in the healthcare program, we have people from all over the world in all aspects of healthcare public health surgery you name it everything nurses physiotherapists and and they find it incredibly revealing to spend all that time they come for 11 days at a time five times over a year and a half and they do other stuff at work and they find it incredibly revealing to be exposed to all these other people in their own field who they only meet casually usually Let's then
1: move to rebalancing society. We've talked about four major things that you've done. And the fifth one, I think that the one that you're most engaged with at the moment, obviously, then you've written about healthcare. You've written about the Canadian condition. You've written about air travel. So you've written voraciously, I would say. But, you know, if I structure it this way that you have the management slash leadership, pile you have the the strategy pile you have the organization pile and you have the managerial education pile and then the fifth pile is is what i would call rebalancing society do you remember when you first started thinking about things at this scale
2: intensively yeah because i went to prague in 1991 which was two years after the Velvet Revolution, two years after the fall of communism in Czechoslovakia and other places in Eastern Europe. And the conclusion in the West was that capitalism had triumphed. And it was absolutely evident to me, being there, it wasn't about the triumph of capitalism at all. It was about the fall, the collapse of communism. Communism did more to bring itself down than capitalism did because it was so out of balance on the side of the public sector and the private sector uh was very weak uh, in most of the communist countries except for Yugoslavia and and controlled by the public sector as it still somewhat is in in China and i thought there was a third sector and i thought of it as the community sector the the non-business non-government sector and i wrote an article and published it in 1992 in the Scandinavian Journal of Management uh, that actually mentioned the three sectors without calling it, which I did later, the plural sector. Plural because this comprises all those organizations that are neither government nor business. Just think about it. McGill, University, Greenpeace, co-ops, all kinds of trusts and associations and Huge, huge charities, churches. I mean, it's huge. It's massive. And yet it's ignored because everything is left, right, government business, private, public, and they ignore the sector that's more about common property and and more about non-business, non-government activities. So about 25 years later, I published Rebalancing Society in in 2015 that got into that and described a healthy society as balancing three sectors, public, private, plural. Communism was out of whack on the side of public sector. Uh, Capitalism has since thrown America and and Britain and many other countries out of whack on the side of the private sector because of this mistaken belief that capitalism triumphed. Back then in the 80s, The Western, the strong Western countries were balanced. But because they thought capitalism triumphed, it's been triumphing ever since, throwing America and Britain in particular, and many other countries, totally out of balance. And the populist governments that have arisen in reaction to capitalism are plural sector imbalance. Whether it's religion in Turkey or the poor in Venezuela, there are different communities that control the government and control the society. So it's a third way of being out of balance. Compared with Finland, Norway, Sweden, the, the Scandinavian countries that are beautifully balanced, Canada's not bad, New Zealand is wonderfully well balanced. Uh, there are countries, but they're mostly smaller countries.
1: Yeah, I was actually thinking about the National Rifle Association's influence in, in U.S. US yeah. politics. It's you a know. plural
2: sector organization, so is yeah. the Nazi party. <laughs> there, there are community associations. It's not all good, but a lot of it is.
1: I'm kind of trying to draw a connection with what you said earlier that, you know, organizations tend to, to require different ways of governance depending on what their purpose is. And, and it seems that also the three sectors, they're somehow different.
2: Yeah. In fact, it's important to not mix them up in terms of, uh, of how they're managed. I personally prefer the other framework, which is the personal program, professional, project as a way of talking about how organizations are governed and how they work okay uh, because the the personal organizations are very centralized controlled by an individual the programmed organizations are controlled by rules and regulations and standards and planning and all that the professional organizations are largely controlled by the professionals who are largely controlled by the professional associations. If you want to look for power in a hospital, look to the doctors. And if you look to the doctors, you better look to the medical associations because they determine the protocols and so on that um, that uh, guide their behavior. And in a project organization, which is truly creative, decentralized, that's where you get the most interesting kind of innovation that uh, Clay Christensen talks about. These are largely in project-type organizations, very decentralized, uh, but very flexible, very organic organizations. So the creative ones are the project organizations, and, and the personal ones, if the chief is creative, um, and the other two, professional and programmed, are, are exploiting organizations, not exploring organizations and i'm not using the word exploiting in a negative sense they exploit existing technologies
1: it seems to me that the historical examples where we've seen a lot of plural organizations pop up or they're not necessarily even organizations they might be social movements that are not very organized it depends on but there's this this Curious flourishing that happens often in specific geographic sites. So I'm thinking of, say, artistic movements. We have, say, Vienna after the First World War, where, where there was a major cultural flourishing. Then we have the United States, which, which used to be, I, I suppose in the 19th century, it used to be the land of, of opportunity and there was a lot of social activity. And I suppose, you know, when you have this frontier mentality that you have communities that need stuff done, then there are schools that are being founded and there's healthcare being organized and, you know, you organize a co-op store and, and, and these kinds of things. So do you see any, commonality of of when do we see the plural sector perhaps in a positive sense
2: we did a little video this it's on my minceberg minutes with actually a video of my channel on youtube and we did a video of the three sectors vis-a-vis a skating rink and the message was as follows the left foot and the right foot government and business have to push you ahead in skating in balance and in parallel. So you, you you can't skate on one leg. Society can't skate on one leg. You can't skate on government. You can't skate on business. You skate on government and business pushing together to move you forward, but you're up against the snow that's blocking you, and that's where the shovel comes in, because the shovel or the machine clears the snow so the left foot and right foot can do their job. And the shovel is the plural sector. The plural sector opens the path so that government and business can do what they have to do. What what all these stories have in common, it seems to me, is is that the plural sector opens the pathway Okay. So in Vienna, I'm sure there was strong business and I'm sure there was strong government and all that, but it was community that opened the pathway and created the norms and the attitudes and the enthusiasm that sent these places forward. And you know, you mentioned places, but you didn't mention one for good reason is Brazil. Most people don't realize that Brazil has one of the most vibrant plural sectors of any country in the world. When I hear of some really new, interesting idea, like um, in Brazil, there's a movement that seizes or plants themselves on unused farmland uh, and farm it. They farm it. They don't ask permission. It's being unused, it's owned by somebody, they go out and farm it. And in America these people would be in jail. In Brazil they're heroes. And and Brazil has an incredibly vibrant plural sector. So when I hear the way Brazil dealt with HIV AIDS was spectacular and 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 shocked the World Bank that thought it was out of control. And they controlled it through plural sector organizations who got together. It's that consolidation of the plural sector that really moves things. All the people affected by HIV-AIDS, and they consolidated into a movement that brought down the level of of AIDS enormously in Brazil. Bolsonaro notwithstanding, it's an aberration of a sort, but Lula was certainly uh, very strong on community. And community in Brazil is amazingly vibrant, amazingly, probably more than any place in the world.
1: I'm hearing the same mechanical engineer spirit that that sort of let's go and, and change the world. Let's go do things rather than, than distance ourselves. Let's go and shovel out the snow so that the, the structures can do their work. One theme that where that's particularly hard that you've thought a lot about recently is climate change. Because climate change isn't a single problem. It's kind of all the world's problems clumped up almost. So it, yeah. it has to do with inequality as, as much as it has to do with technology. It has to do with world politics. Everything that's hard seems to be clumped up in that problem. So how do you envision the plural sector engaging with, with really hard problems like that?
2: Well, let's start with this comment, which is outrageous, but absolutely true. I believe we will get nowhere, nowhere with climate change until we rebalance society. Nowhere. What we get now are 40 year plans from four year governments. It's, it's laughable. It's laughable. They, they last four years and they make 40 year plans. They're just kicking the problem down, kicking the can down the street to the next government. They're doing almost nothing. Uh, we will get nowhere on climate change until we rebalance society. We will get nowhere with income disparities until we rebalance society. We will get nowhere with the demise of democracies until we rebalance societies and, and the globe. I mean, globalization is an imbalance on the global level, uh, because it, there's no countervailing power to globalization, economic globalization, which is the only globalization that really matters. There's no countervailing power. So it, it, it dominates and, uh, and and we will get nowhere. So the core of the problem is the imbalance. So w- we we have to address that.
1: How do you see the plural sector bringing balance into the equation? Let's say that well we see cities for instance smart cities and, and arguably cities are the type of a political structure uh that seem to be doing the most or at least that are doing more than governments. That that's I guess Fair to say. And and I guess cities are appropriate size so that, that people can actually have some kind of a dialogue between the s- sectors. They're yeah. co located so that people can meet each other. So, is there anything in that idea?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the smaller the city, the better, in a way. Uh, there's more of a sense of community. In a smaller city. You know, the Economist has a ranking of democracies and only 21 countries in the world are ranked as full democracies. And they're mostly small. Yeah. I think Finland's number three. Norway's number one. New Zealand, I think, is two. The biggest of those countries is Japan, which is the 11th biggest in the world. So the 10 biggest countries in the world are not full democracies. Why are all these tiny little countries so together? Like, countries like Costa Rica, countries like Uruguay. Why are they so together? I guess because there's a sense of community. People know each other, and, and and you can't get away with things the way a Trump can get away with stuff in the United States. Suddenly a Nixon or a Trump end up running the country. These are utterly corrupt human beings, utterly, utterly corrupt human beings, and yet they maneuver through a big impersonal system right to the top. <music>
1: One sentiment that I remember you once expressing was that that you've spent your entire career studying organizations in different ways. And then you said that you've spent your private life avoiding them. <laughs> that- <laughs> escaping. So in, in in one sense I guess you know there's something really exasperating also what happens in organizations when they for instance a firm has been created to deliver profits to its shareholders that's what legislation defines it to be and it seems that they are very very hard to control sometimes they they have different roles in society but we do know of many examples where they've they really crossed the line. But that in some sense, it feels to me that it is often a, an organizational rather than a human problem that we're talking about. Maybe it's both, but sort of I think the organizational problem is, is perhaps more fascinating. So why is it that, that organizations are so hard to control?
2: I think it's the imbalance problem again. Let's go back to patents, okay, and monopolies. We always had, years ago, telephone landline monopolies. We had electrical monopolies we still have electrical
1: and those were often co-ops right so they were actually
2: some are co-ops and some aren't but we controlled them we gave we granted monopoly rights uh, and in turn had regulatory bodies to control how much they priced their electricity and so on. what we have with pharmaceuticals is the granting of monopolies with no controls Uh, and these are life and death products. And why is this happening? Well, why didn't it happen when, when we were monopolizing, uh, power and phones? Because society was in balance and government was able to hold business in check. And now, We've got this absurd idea that somehow government is bad. This is the American disease. Government is bad and business is good. I love business. I love my car. I love my iPhone. I love restaurants. Uh, I love business in its place. I want business in its place, which is the marketplace and out of the public place. And it's completely reversed itself. Uh, and it gets worse constantly. And so the income disparities simply come from the fact that the financial organizations have such incredible control over the movement of funds and everything that they're ripping off monumentally. We've got this pressure to conform and and serve the stock market constantly for the short term so people can get in and out and make some money and destroying these companies or damaging at least these companies in the long term. Yeah,
1: the paradox, of course, is that it's our you know retirement savings, you know, it's basically people's money that drive the the stock market. So it's a
2: sure. We're all responsible. It's
1: time for us to wrap up, but I wanted to ask one more question. So, what's next? Do you have a project that you're really passionate about? What What are you keen to to do next?
2: Well, rebalancing society is far from finished. <laughs> so, I want to write a more popular pamphlet kind of thing to wake people up to that something more accessible and easy for people to get to i want to bring the uh, org, which is the main website uh to the attention of many more people we're doing all kinds of things like that we're we're, we're looking into possible video forms and uh, and all kinds of ways to achieve that after that i think the whole question of democracy needs to be rethought What we call democracy is not necessarily democracy for everybody, and we need to rethink that. But, you know, and then I want to sort of go back to publishing the short stories that I wrote. I wrote a whole bunch of short stories that never got published, personal. They're not fiction. They're personal experiences. I wouldn't mind uh, doing a a kind of autobiography at some point called Dreams I Never Could Have Dreamt," which is this charming life of... uh, being able to do all this so yeah I've got enough to keep me going for till at least 120 <laughs>
1: <laughs> so we have a lot to look forward to thank you so much Henry it was a pleasure
2: thank you Saku me too
1: wow so we covered a lot of ground there didn't we so thanks for joining in I hope you enjoyed this conversation and I hope that you'll be able to come back and join us on future episodes of Delf.
0: You've been listening to a conversation between Desotel Professor and preeminent management scholar Henry Mintzberg and Desotel Professor and Delve Editor-in-Chief Saku Monta. Find out more about Henry Mintzberg's latest work at rebalancingsociety.org and Mintzberg.org. Listen to more episodes of the Delve podcast and read articles based on management research at delve.mcgill.ca. You can also follow Delve McGill on all podcasting apps on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to the Delve McGill podcast and follow us for critical thinking and insights on management today.